Good morning, church. It is a blessing to get, to get to be here with all of you guys today. Let me move that out of the way. Um, it's a joy to be able to be indoors, and even if it has to be with masks, um, it's such a joy to be able to gather as the saints and just to, um, yeah, to spend time uh, together and fellowshipping over the word. Uh, just as a brief update uh, for me and Perry, um, you know, it's, it's been a joy, as you guys probably know, for us to be new parents. Um, it's something we've wanted for uh, such a long time. Uh, the story my, my mother likes to tell uh, was that when I was little, um, uh, way too young to be pouring my own Costco-sized gallon of milk, uh, my mom would like to help me, and I would often tell my mother, Mom, I got this, I got this, uh, because when I'm seven, I'm going to be a dad. And so um, I guess it's something I've always wanted, but we're so thankful. Um, and, it, and like any veteran parent can tell you, not that we're veterans, but we've had our fair share of, of having to deal with messes, cleanups. Um, I remember the first time I held her, my mouth super excited, and she proceeded to just plaster me with all of the milk that she had stored up, and I uh, tasted things I didn't want to have to taste. Um, but it has been such a joy, and um, yeah, we're, we're doing well, and so we're so thankful for those who have been praying for us, asking how we're doing, asking how our sleep is going. Um, man, it, it has been so much, but it's such a joy, and so I really give a shout out to all the parents, especially to all the moms who have been through so much to raise their own children. Oh, well, last week, if you guys were here, uh, Nam, uh, among many other things, uh, talked and mentioned uh, about how in 2 Timothy 3.12, he talked about how all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Uh, to state it again, he, he alluded to the fact, he stated how all real Christians who desire to live a real Christian life will all face very real, um, intangible persecution one way or another. And in today's passage, we're going to examine a man who is not so much persecuted on the basis of his theological, doctrinal beliefs, uh, but more so someone who's opposed on every side because of what his theological beliefs compel him to do. As any Christian who has walked for any number of years can tell you, carrying the banner of Christ into this fallen world will always, at least in some way, in some measure, in some time, arouse the anger, the frustration, the suspicion, and opposition of the world we live in. What we see as we look at our world is that truly living for Christ does not allow us to be liked by everyone. It won't allow us to always be popular and well thought of, because the reality is, is that our master, Jesus Christ, was opposed by so many. And so living for Jesus uh, whether it's because you're doing the actual work of the ministry or because you're simply trying to live a godly, faithful Christian life will lead to opposition in the here and now. And opposition can take many forms. It can come from opposition outside the church. It can come inside the church. Uh, it can even be the sinful objections in our own heart. It can come in the form of ridicule, right? Popular media is just... Uh, just abjectly against so many things in this world, you can't make fun of just about anything, but one thing that it's pretty okay to make fun of is to make fun of Christians. Right? And I, I think a big part of why that is is because Christians historically have taken it, and they've done so, generally speaking, with grace. 
Popular culture loves to make fun of Christians for being backwater, illogical, irrational, um, bigoted people, people who are on the wrong side of history, and it's unfortunate, right? You see it on TV, you see it on billboards, schools, social media posts, you hear it um, at the break room at your, at your work, you hear it here and you hear it there, and sooner or later it feels like that's kind of just the public sentiment. Opposition can come in the form of scheming and personal attacks against you. Uh, perhaps it's someone scheming against you because of your faith. Someone who just is out to get you at work or at your school. It could be direct threats against your jobs, your professional careers, your academic credibility for really no other reason than you hold to a biblical perspective and a biblical worldview. And what we're going to see today in our passage is that we're going to look at Nehemiah, a man who was opposed on every side. And what I love about the story of Nehemiah is that Nehemiah is a man who believes in the power of prayer, but he will also believe in deliberate action. He's a man who will pray fervently, and yet he will do. He believes in the supernatural power of prayer, but he also will trust that God often will answer through seemingly natural, normal, and ordinary ways. When we see the opposition that Nehemiah encounters, I'm sure that he believed and was aware of all the different ways that God can miraculously help him. And yet for Nehemiah, there would be no parting of the Red Seas, there would be no angel armies, and there would be no turning of water into wine. What we see is that Nehemiah will be in the face of opposition. He will pray, and God will deliver him through normal, ordinary means. And so this passage in Nehemiah chapter 4 that we're about to jump into, uh, this is a passage... For any of us here, if you've been ridiculed or mocked for no other reason than for the sheer fact that you're living for Christ. This passage is for you if you've ever felt bullied or belittled or put down uh, just because you chose to bring the message of Christ into a conversation where it was thoroughly unwelcomed. If you've ever expended yourself for the glory of God, for his kingdom, for his ministry purposes, only to face bitter and critical discouragement at every turn. This is a passage for you if, in an academic circle, you ever felt alone or singled out or mocked for your beliefs because of what the Bible says about the sanctity of marriage, human sexuality, or unborn life. You've ever found yourself alone at a family gathering if you're perhaps the only Christian among you. If, if you have found yourself alone and felt like you did not have a friend or an ally, that's what Nehemiah chapter 4 is about. And so as we jump into Nehemiah chapter 4, I want to be right up front and kind of see if I can get this to work. Am I getting it? I'm technologically challenged here. Oh, there we go. There we got the first one. And so I want to give you my outline um, right off the bat. Right off the bat. And we're going to, in our passage today, we're going to look at uh, four forms of opposition as well as Nehemiah's response. And if you're looking ahead on the outline, what you'll notice is the fourth is not so much a form of direct opposition, uh, but an obstacle. And we'll get to more on that later. But before we jump in, um, as we jump in, let me read for us our passage today. And it's a little bit of a long one, but it's a good one. 
This is what it says, Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 uh, to the end at 23. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from their sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. And so, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I also said to the people of that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Now, as we, before we jump in this passage, you probably, we probably need to review a little bit of context, as it's been some time since we've been in Nehemiah. 
For wondering uh, where we are, we're here at the post-exilic period. Um, it is the time after um, Israel has been in uh, exile. And so some of the Israelites, um, under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel, have returned to Jerusalem. But returning to Jerusalem has mostly been about going to a once-defeated kingdom and trying uh, to rebuild what was broken. Who destroyed these walls? Well, the walls were destroyed at a human level by Nebuchadnezzar II, king of Babylon, about 140 years prior. But theologically, we know that the person who destroyed these walls was God himself. We read in Scripture how the fact that Jerusalem's walls were destroyed, it was told by God. God said that he would judge them for their sin and their idolatry. And so the destruction, the heap of ruins that was Jerusalem was not just a reminder of military conquest, but of sin and spiritual idolatry. This was not a tale of of simply Eastern warlords taking things over and different clans doing this and that. This was a story about God's people, about God's people who had sinned and about a period of rebuilding. Now, why do these walls matter? I mean, as you read Nehemiah, it perhaps might be easy to be like, well, it's just really about a governor, a cupbearer who just came and built a wall. Is, is it really that big of a deal? And the answer is that to understand this wall, you have to understand what it meant for God and what it meant for his people. We see, among many other things, um, one of the central instructions that God gave his people to do in the Old Testament was to worship him. And you couldn't just worship any way. You had to worship at the temple, right? Uh, To understand, to worship God, it was a privilege. It was a privilege that cost something. And to pay, to atone for our sins at a temporary level, we had to sacrifice animals at the temple, We had to do sin offerings, burnt offerings, wave offering, peace offerings, free will offerings, all these things we had to do because the worship of God, faithfulness to God, was centralized in the temple. And around the temple, to protect the temple, they built walls. Because in ancient Near Eastern times, to have walls was to have protection, to have security. A a city or a town without walls was one that was left defenseless and was open to marauding armies, bandits, and even wild animals. And so because the temple mattered, the walls that protected the temple and the priests and the people who had come to the temple mattered. But even more so than that, if we read Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 52, we find out that the walls of Jerusalem were more than just a pragmatic means of protecting God's people. In fact, Deuteronomy 28, 52 reminds us that the state of the walls, the destruction of the walls, was a depiction of the spiritual condition of Israel. Moses preached to his people saying that if they disobey God, if they are faithless, if they're idolaters, Deuteronomy 28.52 says this, They then shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land, and they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And yet, by contrast, if they do obey God, what we read earlier in Deuteronomy 28, verse 7, it says, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come against you one way and flee in seven ways. And so as we understand what these walls meant, it was a means of practically helping people worship God, to protecting those people. 
but also said something about the state of Israel um, and who their God was. As one commentator put it, to see in Israel a Jerusalem without walls was to know it was Jerusalem without a God. And so through Nehemiah's efforts, what we will see and what he will attempt to do is something he will attempt to do in 52 days, something that has been attempted multiple times, but has never been accomplished in the last 140 years. Now, as we open this passage, we're, the first thing we're going to notice is the first character. It's going to be a man named San, uh, Sanbalat and another guy named Tobiah. And just by a brief um, way to kind of review these people, who are these guys? Who are Sanbalat and Tobiah? Uh, Sanballat is going to be the main opponent to Nehemiah throughout the story. Um, he's kind of listed first. He's mentioned time and time again. Um, he is, uh, as we find out in the Elephantine papyri, in some old documents, we find out that at least at some point, he's going to become the governor of Samaria. And it's possible that he's the governor here, um, though it's probably more likely uh, that he was just a powerful uh, rival chieftain who would eventually rise to power. Uh, and that seems... Um, and that seems to be more likely. Tobiah the Ammonite um, is uh, someone from the tribe, from the people of Ammon. They would have been worshipers of uh, Milcom and Molech. They were pagans. And so Sanbalat, being from Samaria, the northern tribe, he would have been familiar with Jewish culture. Um, from what we know, from what he named his children, as well as uh, some details about his personal life, he probably... Um, ascribed to a general Jewish religion, more or less. But either way, we come to our passage and we see the enemies of Nehemiah. The enemies of God arrange themselves. And so it is here that we come to our first form of opposition, our first form of opposition, and it is opposition by ridicule. Opposition by ridicule. What we see here is it says, uh, they, they come together, they hear that the building of the wall is happening, and Sanballat is so angry, he's infumed, he's ra- enraged. And so what he does is he jeers at the Jews, he ridicules them, he mocks them. Uh, they, they see these helpless, spect- they, they, they see what's going on, and they realize that even though they had tried to make fun of him earlier, um, in earlier chapters, the building of the wall is still going on. And what we see here is they employ ridicule. And ridicule is an old, an old weapon of the enemy, right? Because for ridicule to be effective, to be debilitating, um, it doesn't have to rely necessarily on factual um, information. It doesn't have to have a cogent, well-sounded argument. It only has to have a biting tone to be loud and to have people with an earshot. And so Sanballat, he unloads, he begins his campaign of ridicule in front of the Jewish builders and the army of Samaria. And it says his brothers, and that was more likely his allies, those who agreed with him. And he begins by asking five scathing questions. Five scathing questions. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? And feeble here means frail, miserable, um, weak, uh, powerless, and withered. At this time, Jewish morale and national spirit has seen better days. They've had some encouragement. Nehemiah has roused them up in chapter 2, but uh, they're still very much a small, weak, and largely defeated people. He uses the word feeble because if you read in chapter 3, we learn about who these builders are. These are not professional architects. These are not people who build for a living. Most of it are made of, of people who are 
who do other jobs. We have goldsmiths and perfumers. We have priests. We have women. Probably have old people. This was not an ideal building team. And he looks out and says, who are these feeble, feeble Jews? He then asks another question. He says, will they restore it for themselves? He wants to instill doubt into the wisdom of the project. Are they actually going to be able to do it? I mean, look at you guys. He says then, will they sacrifice? (sighs) Sanballat is criticizing the legitimacy of their trust in God. Are are you really going to build a wall and then are you really going to sacrifice to God? Is 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 that really what you guys want? Are you serious? Then he asks again, will they finish up in a day? He's saying, do you have any idea how hard this task is going to be? Are you going to be able to finish it a day? Do you really want to do more work than just 24 hours? Do you have any idea how huge this task is? It's going to be a huge effort, and you guys don't have the strength. A fifth question. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? If you can hear the language, what he's suggesting is not only is the work hard, but it's not a building of a wall, it's a rebuilding. There's a mess. There, the walls have been burned. There are destroyed stones. And he's, what he's even suggesting is it's all destroyed stones. Where are you going to get stones? Are you going to get good stones from destroyed rubbish stones? And yet, as we know from Nehemiah, it was an exaggeration because there were stones they were able to use. And we see that in the prior chapters and in the later. And then to make matters worse, we get Tobiah. And Tobiah just kind of jumps in there. He's kind of like, I imagine, like that sidekick who's like, yeah, that's him. He says, he jumps in there and he says, yeah, what they're building, if a fox goes up on the wall, it's going to totally come down. Tobiah is saying that the wall is so pitiful and so sad looking that just a small animal would be able to take it down. Um, We know that this word for uh, fox is... Um, used in Lamentations. We find out that um, in Lamentations 5.18 that these foxes um, were commonly known to um, inhabit desolate places, and so that was even a, uh, a way of referring to how desolate and sad this wall was looking. What's interesting, I did some a little research into this fox just for fun, and I found out that this word fox, it probably either refers to the red fox that was in the area or the golden jackal. And these animals could, arrange, could be between 5 to 30 pounds. So if we say we had like a 30-pound fox, which is like a super-duper chunky fox, but if he's, the, if he's there and he climbs on this wall and brings it down, and we know from geography and from archaeology that this wall was about 9 feet wide, right? And so the idea that a fox, like a, like a, like a little fox or like a cat, could go up and knock down the wall, Tobiah is exaggerating, but it hurts nonetheless. And you can hear uh, the effect it could have on the listeners, the builders, who already, I mean, it's already a lot. They've already done much. So Tobiah was exaggerating through his teeth, but the ridicule was felt. But how does Nehemiah respond? Well, notice what he, notice what he doesn't do for a moment. He doesn't snap back at Sanblat. He could. He could fire back and throw things at them, but he doesn't. He could have retaliated with an unbridled expression of rage and anger but he doesn't. Rather, Nehemiah's response is prayer and concentrated work. Prayer and concentrated work. Immediately, almost interrupting in the passage what what the ridiculers are saying, Nehemiah launches himself into prayer. 
And so it's possible that Nehemiah actually publicly interrupted and started praying. That's possible. It's unclear. I think more likely that this is simply a prayer that Nehemiah had privately, but he interjects it right into the text. And what we see here just modeled for us immediately is just the reminder that God's people should always regard prayer not as a last resort, but as a primary means against opposition. Right? All too often, I think if we are honest, it's so easy to work by the strength of our own might and to do and to exhaust every human option and effort, and when it's all gone, you go to prayer. And that's not Nehemiah. He goes straight there. He goes straight there. Nehemiah understands that without God, he can't do anything, that he needs help, that he needs God's justice, as we're going to see in a moment. And so in his prayer, Nehemiah goes to God, and he goes very honestly. Look at, he says, God, we are despised. He's honest about how he feels. He's honest about the state of the matter. In fact, he's telling God something that God already knew, but he's telling it because he's expressing his heart. And yet, then what he says is he uses very strong language. He says, turn their taunt upon their own heads. He's saying, God, what they want for us, do to them. They're mocking us. Show them that they are wrong. And if you keep going, you, you realize, wow, there's some really strong language in here. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. We call this an imprecatory prayer, which is fancy theological words to say a prayer in which one calls for God's justice to fall upon the wicked. And I know that as a New Testament Christian, there may be a temptation to read this passage with maybe some embarrassment, uh, to not really know what to do. Um, Perhaps it feels at odds with Jesus' teaching to love our enemies. But as we understand this passage, I want to point out a few things. First, I want to point out that Nehemiah's prayer here is not an unholy venting of emotion um, or, or raw anger. Rather, it's a very real expression of Nehemiah's passion for God's work and God's glory. We have to understand it in its context. Right? This is not the temper of a small man who doesn't get what he wants. Secondly, Nehemiah's prayer is not a prayer against the salvation of the enemies. He's not praying against that they would not be saved. He is asking, rather, for God to act, for God to be who he is. God calls himself a God of justice. He is calling God to be that God. Thirdly, uh, Nehemiah's language is consistent with Scripture. It's very similar to the words of Jeremiah 18.23 which says, Yet, O Lord, know all their plotting to kill me. Forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. And I think we have to understand and believe that Nehemiah is calling for God to do his thing, to do justice, but his way and his timing. Fourthly, and most significantly, I think, this is a call for God to do what he said he would do as a, means of, as a means of honoring the promises in his word. I read earlier to you guys Nehemiah, Nehemiah Deuteronomy 28.7, in which God tells the Jewish people that if they will obey God with their entire heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is what Nehemiah and the Jewish people are trying to do, he says he will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. 
I think that's what Nehemiah is doing here. That he's asking God to be faithful, to be just, just as he is. It's a prayer of honesty. Uh, It's a prayer for the zeal of the glory of God. And it's rooted in who God is and his nature and his promises. Now, as a brief aside, I think a natural question may follow then is, as we look at this imprecatory prayer, the question is often asked, is there a place for imprecatory prayers in our own life? And, and I, think, uh, I, think, I think that we have to remember a few things when we answer that question, that Nehemiah was an inspired writer of Scripture, and he lived under the Old Covenant promises, under passages of Deuteronomy 28, as we mentioned. And so I don't think it's quite the same for us And yet, though we may not live under the Old Covenant, at the same time, I do think we can, and there is a place to ask God to be God and to bring justice in his timing, by his means, under his sovereign plans and ordination. Well, Nehemiah doesn't just pray. He doesn't just pray a prayer. He also puts the people to concentrated work. I love verse 6 because after hearing ridicule, praying, it just simply says, so we built the wall. So we built the wall. As one commentator writes, the sturdy simplicity of that statement, so we built the wall, and the behavior it records makes Sanballat and his allies suddenly seem small, shrill, and dwarfed by the faith, unity, and energy of the Jewish people. Simply put, they, they ignore. They keep calm and carry on, as we might say. The mockery of their enemy that seems so loud and so piercing, so perhaps debilitating a moment ago, now fades into the background as each stone is laid, each builder concentrating on their work. And so rather than concentrating on the work of their enemy, of all the naysayers, they just do what they've come to do. Nehemiah prays, and then he acts. It's a consistent theme we'll see throughout this chapter and throughout the life of Nehemiah. His prayers are real, and yet his actions are deliberate and intentional. Nehemiah is not the person who prays some kind of general whimsical prayer, um, only to then sit around and do nothing at all. He knew that God could do a miracle. He could do the supernatural. He could send one angel to wipe out the entire forces of Sanballat. He could. But Nehemiah knew that oftentimes the supernatural power of prayer is answered in very natural ways normal, and ordinary ways. And so they concentrate themselves on the work. It says that the people had a mind to work. It's, you could translate it, they had a heart to do the work. The purpose is clear. The people were ready, and they had a mind. They focused themselves. They concentrated on the task at hand. And I think what's fascinating is even right there, as Nehemiah prays, he, the, his prayer is almost immediately answered. He asks God to, uh, to help them out, and immediately what Nehemiah does is the very thing that God uses uh, to turn the taunts of Sanballat and his friends on their head. His action is what ends up being used by God to answer the very prayer he had prayed for. And it's so true of us, Right? or so true of how we should be, that though we pray and though we should move ourselves to pray, we also need to do and to be obedient to the best of our ability. Prayer and concentrated work. 
Well, then we move on and we go to another form of opposition as we move on to verses 7 and 8, 7 and 8. And here we get opposition by plotting, opposition by plotting. So Sanballat and Tobiah enter the scene again. And this time we're com- we come with the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites. Okay? And they show up, and this time he's got, he's got three different foreign powers who have come to join the axis of evil here, who are determined to oppose the people of God. And they begin to plot, and they begin to scheme. And what it says is that as they heard the walls, that the, they were filling in the breaches of the walls. They were angry once again, and so they plotted to come and fight against the people of God. There's a conspiracy now. There is, uh, there's a growing alliance against the small community here in Jerusalem. And if you're not familiar with Eastern, near, ancient Near Eastern geography, which I'm not, I had to look it up, you may miss what is actually being said. We got Jerusalem right here in the middle, and Sanballat, the enemy, is from the north. That's Samaria. And we have the Arabs now in the south. And then we have the Ammonites in the east. And then we have the Ashdodites in the west. They're completely surrounded. What that would have meant to them is we have enemies on every side and not a single friend. And where is the capital of of Persia? Where is Susa from which... Um, Nehemiah came, well, it's about 900 miles away, which depending on how, what route you took and how fast your animal was, could take between three to five months before any help came. It was not looking good. If a military engagement broke out at any point, retreat would not be an option. Now, more than likely, Sanballat and his, his alliance here um, they would have known historically that if they took vengeance, if they had tagged Jerusalem, even though it would have taken Persia a while to hear about, they probably would have experienced the retribution of the Persian army, um, even if it took a long time after. And so, more than likely, uh, what they had in mind was not necessarily so much an, a, um, a full-scale attack, though that was possible, but more than likely it's speculated that they were plotting guerrilla warfare attacking a section of the wall at night and then running away, ransacking a supply caravan that would bring food and building supplies, uh, perhaps even slipping in an assassin into the camp and then murdering a key leader before anyone had noticed. And that's what's kind of alluded to in Nehemiah chapter 6. These clandestine, or you could say sneaky, cloak-and-dagger tactics are all, are all, here, in the, are, are all here at play. And Nehemiah has to deal with it. I mean, can you imagine how he felt? I'm sure many of us here can relate to that sentiment, to feeling like you don't have a friend in the world, uh, no one there to help you. And so Nehemiah is outmanned, he's outgunned, he's surrounded on every side. It is a grim situation. But here we get in verse 9 his response, and it's simple. Nehemiah's response, it says, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Nehemiah's response, once again, is prayer and guard duty. Prayer and guard duty. And, and really, this is just an extension of what we saw in the last section, where the real principle here is that Nehemiah prays and then he acts. He faithfully goes to the Lord and then faithfully does the best he can with what is set before him. I think what's interesting here is you get the first prayer in the last section we just looked at, but here we don't get the prayer Nehemiah prayed. And Nehemiah didn't have to record it. Um, 
But I think what's interesting is that by leaving it out, I think that Nehemiah is taking the relationship between prayer and action, and he's highlighting the action. Not to at all belittle prayer, the content of prayer, but he's highlighting how Christians must still do. That we can't just throw up a prayer and just say, well, you know, God will take care of it. I'm going to do nothing to the complete rejection of responsibility uh, to, uh, to simply just play. God has got it. And then to say, you know what, I, I have no responsibility here. That is far from the response of Nehemiah. Now, what we look at Nehemiah's actions here is as we see him praying and doing, it's interesting, he prays for protection, and then he immediately almost seems like he takes protection into his own hands. And so what we're reminded here is that we shouldn't see Nehemiah's actions as a lack of faith, as maybe you might be tempting to see, but it's a demonstration of his faith. The reason Nehemiah sets up guard duty, and the way he does it, is he sets it up so that... um, They'll be on watch so that people will be able to see together um, whether an army is coming. The reason he does this is not because he doesn't believe God can protect, but again, because he believed that God can use his actions to bring about the very thing he is praying for. Let's remember that when Nehemiah prays this, it's not, uh, it's not a theoretical danger. It's a very real danger. We read it as a story today, but back then it was a real time and place with real people and and real lives. And so what we see for, in here in Nehemiah that I just love is that we see a man whose be, his belief and trust in the absolute power of prayer is in no way an impediment to his industry, his careful planning, or his action. Right? This is not the man who perhaps asks for his unbelieving family members to be saved, but will not lift a finger to talk about Christ in the hopes that maybe one day God will just drop them off unknowingly through a church door. This is not the person who asks for wisdom in caring for their aging parents with complete abandon, looking at to the complete abandon of looking into the details of their needs, their financial, their medical housing, in the hopes that God will someday uh, drop deliverance from the sky. This is not the man who prays for his marriage to improve and then does absolutely nothing of changing his own heart in the hopes that God will change her. But rather, Nehemiah's earnest prayer does not stop him from doing, but it moves him. It is here that uh, I think of a quote that's often attributed to St. Augustine, which goes something like this, Pray as though everything depended on God. Work as though everything depended on you. And as long as we understand those things carefully uh, together, I think that's exactly the sentiment of what Nehemiah is embodying. He's praying as hard as he can, and yet he is trying his best to be faithful. And so again, Nehemiah organizes a guard rotation that will be on watch 24-7 throughout the night. And as we look back at our passage, as we look back in Nehemiah, he comes to another form of opposition, another form of opposition, and it's this. So he's been ridiculed, attacks have been, um, have been alleged, and as far as we can tell so far in the passage, things, things seem okay, right? You can imagine the first night, they're nervous, they're okay. But then... In verses 10 and 12, 
discouragement enters the camp. We've had attacks from outside, and now we're going to get them from inside. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. Some time has passed, probably, from Sanballat's threats and their mockery. Uh, The guard duties kept them safe, but now discouragement has seeped in, uncertainty. People are unsure of of whether they they can do this task. They're saying it's too hard. They're saying it's too much. We can't do this. It's, they even say there is too much rubble. And this is fascinating because at this point, they've already built half the wall. And so even though they're still very much in the process, says there's too much rubble, they've built the wall. There was already rubble there. And so in all likelihood, there's probably less rubble now than it started with. And yet the builders are saying there's just too much. We, we can't do it. The poisonous words of Sanbalat have probably begun to get into the minds of the people. They're starting to think, they're starting to wonder, they're thinking about how long it's been, how difficult it's been, how dangerous it is, and they're feeling discouraged. And then in verse 11, it says, And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them or stop the work. And at that time, Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. You must return to us, they say. It was, it was a little bit like this. The Jews who are from the surrounding areas, they're coming in maybe to help with the work. Some of them were commuting in. We know that from chapter 3. They're coming in. They've heard all these different things. They're like, hey, you, listen, you've you got to get out. You've got to stop. This is so dangerous. Do you realize the risks you're taking? And I think what's, what's fascinating here is that the people here who are saying this, I think they're reasonable. Like, I think you can hear that, right? You can hear the sentiment. You can hear the idea, look, I, I, do you really got to build the wall? Do you really have to follow God this way? Can we just follow God in, a, in another way? And I don't think these people were meant, meant to be discouraging. Like, I don't think if you ask them that they were trying to break the spirit of the builders, I don't think they were trying to thwart the purposes of God. I think they were thinking about safety. I think they were being human. And if I can make a, a brief pastoral pit stop here, I think this is a good place to just give us cause to examine our own speech. You know, um, when we're around others, are we careful with how our words, even if we don't mean to, how our words affect the work that God is doing in the church and in the lives of others? Even if, you know, your words aren't actually mean or even, like, wicked or sinful, do your words that you use, do they bring growth? Do they instill passion for Jesus? Do they increase the love for Christ? Or do they slow it? Do our comments, our thoughts, our feedback, however real or honest we feel about how things could have been done differently, whether it be at church or with those you're around, do they have the potential in how we say it to be needlessly disheartening, demotivating, and discouraging? Even if what you have to say is true, because I think there's some truth here. I think some people really were feeling tired. Some people really were feeling scared. So even if you have something to say that's true, even if you feel like maybe, you know, the church facilities could be used differently, maybe if you feel like the sermon could have more of this or that, even if you wish there were more donuts out there, whatever it is, are you careful that what you're doing isn't unwittingly discouraging and harmful to the work that God is trying to do here at church and in the lives of those around you? 
So how does Nehemiah respond? What does Nehemiah do when discouragement is there? Nehemiah's response is he rallies the people together, and his rally is for is what his battle cry, what he rallies them to, is he says, we are doing this for king and clan. For king and clan. Let me unpack that for a moment. What he does immediately is he quickly finds the place, he hears the threat, and what he immediately does, um, he hears all those different things, and so what he does is he takes the people, um, and he says, uh, he says, he, he grabs them together, and he finds the weak places in the wall. He finds the weak places in the wall, and he says, let's take them and station them by their clans. And he gives them weapon and armor. He mobilizes a militia or a quick army together. See, Nehemiah gathers the armies as he normally would. He does it as in traditional Israelite fashion, where you would fight alongside your clans. And he addresses them, and he says this, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And there was a lot to be afraid of. And what he says is, do not be afraid. He reminds them, he pushes them to remember the Lord, or you could say their king, and their clan, or their family. He gathers the people together. He practically stations soldiers in the different weak parts of the wall. He gathers the officials, and he reminds them why they are doing what they're doing. And so what we see here in Nehemiah is that when we're discouraged, we're called to remind ourselves why we do what we do. He starts with the vertical, he says, remember our Lord, remember God, remember the king for who is really king over your life, who you really are living for. And he says, remember the Lord who was great and awesome, great and awesome. He turns their gaze to heaven. He tells them, remember who our God is. And so he tells them they're great. He reminds us that God is great and awesome, meaning he, to remind us that he deserves this. The effort that you feel, the difficulty, God is worth it. But also... I think it's a reminder that God is great and awesome and has the ability and the power to protect and to bring deliverance if he so wills. But secondly, after turning our gaze vertically, he has us look horizontally to look at the people standing next to them. His plan is to station them by clans and different families and different areas. And he tells them to fight for their brothers, their sons, their daughters, their wives, and their homes. He unleashes really an, an, a, just an epic speech that probably is one of the most epic in, uh, of all the wartime speeches in the Bible. And he reminds them that, look, you're fighting for your family. You're fighting for the protection of your loved ones. He, is, he knows that uh, people will fight harder and more fiercely when they know what the stakes are. That if the battle comes, if they're feeling discouraged, if they look to the left and right, they'll remember why they're doing this. They'll remember the people that they care about. That they're fighting for king, and they're fighting for their clan, for their family. The sentiment of what Nehemiah is saying, or reminding them to, in the second part, is uh, akin to the words of Colonel Hal Moore, who famously said that in the heat of battle, soldiers don't fight for what a president says on TV. They don't fight for mom or apple pie. They fight for each other. And so Nehemiah both reminds them what they're doing, and yet he is so practical and thoughtful and intentional and deliberate, stationing people next to their loved ones. And you can imagine the scene that would have come before, right? You can imagine these different fathers sitting with their homes. You know, they heard all these different words. Hey, you should, uh, you should come back to us. 
you're hearing all these different rumors, um, you know, hearing that it's dangerous. You can imagine a father sitting with a wife and just being like, you know, should we do this? It's, it's easier to leave. It's safer. It's reasonable. And yet, Nehemiah reminds them time and time again, we're doing this for our king and we're doing this for our family. Now, what happens here is that after Nehemiah rallies the people together, there is no attack. You can imagine, after all this, they're just expecting attack and attack, and still no attack comes. We come to verse 15, and it says, When our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, what we see is that they, for whatever, I guess they weren't very sneaky. I guess, I don't know what their plan was, but when, it, when they find out that Nehemiah builds his army, that they are safe, they're now prepared for an attack, it says it frustrates their plans. And now we come to our last opposition. And this isn't so much as a form of opposition as it is an obstacle. And it's perhaps easy to miss. At the beginning of verse 15, it says, when he heard that God had, fr- that God had frustrated their plans, you know, it, it would have been easy right here in this moment of peace, uh, without meaning to, without intending to, for this to be a cause uh, to slow the work. Right? The wall wasn't completed yet, um, and it looked like the attack wasn't going to happen, and everything looked safe. And it'd be so easy to just allow this momentary lull, this lapse in, th- in a direct threat, to result in a, a laziness, to result in, you know, maybe we'll just take an indefinite break from doing the work. It's so easy when opposition is against us that when opposition stops, we forget that it wasn't about facing opposition, it was about building. It was about building a wall. Without an enemy to fight, it would be easy to forget why they were doing what they're doing. But as we see, the main objective was not to simply build an army. It was to build a wall. And so this is where, again, any of us can be so... When we come into seasons of life where, you know, we've been fighting so long, we've had difficulty, and we get easy seasons, it's so easy to waste it and to put down our arms and to stop building. But what is Nehemiah's response to what could have been the obstacle of peace? Well, Nehemiah's response in the last part of this chapter is build and battle. Build and battle. Immediately, uh, Nehemiah, without skipping a beat, after uh, seeing that the, the plans were frustrated, says, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. They went back to it. In time of peace, they didn't say, you know, this is a time for us to just abandon the work of God because it's easy. He says, no, we go back to it. And Nehemiah doesn't even just go back to it. He actually doubles down. He actually organizes the people in such a way that they'll be even more prepared. Right? Before, they had set up a guard duty, and then they set up soldiers in, by families in different parts of the wall. And now he goes further. He says, in time of peace, we prepare even further. We get ready to build, and we get ready to battle. What he tells them to do, essentially, is that builders need to become soldiers, and soldiers need to become builders. You carry stones and building supplies with one hand, and then you have your weapon um, alongside it. You carry a trowel, and you carry a sword, to quote Charles Spurgeon. It's from this very illustration that Charles Spurgeon wrote and started um, a pastoral magazine 
uh, called the trowel and the sword. Because the illustration we see here is that when we are doing a work for God, when we are being faithful to him, we build, we do his work, we do the job God has set out for us, but we also have to be vigilant and to protect it. I think for so many of us, if we're not careful, it can be easy to just build. We do things and we want to build the kingdom of God, but we're not careful to see the dangers that can come into our ministries, the burnout that can befall the people in it. Some of us perhaps are really good at battling. We're always vigilant and we always want to, um, to tell people um, how things should be. We want to fight against false teaching and it's good. And yet sometimes maybe we just battle and we forget to build. And yet what Nehemiah reminds his people is that our God will fight for us. He tells them that if, if a problem should happen, the walls are so spread out, we, we are disunified across the wall. If there is a problem, we'll sound a trumpet and you're all to rally to us. Again, Nehemiah is getting people ready to build, but also to protect the work of God. Then in verse 22, he says, let every man and servant pass the night within Jerusalem. So rather than people who are commuting, he's telling them, he's encouraging them to stay. He's encouraging them to be vigilant. And not, are we only gonna, not only are we going to have a guard duty, but we're going to have it day in, day out, when the, from the sun goes up to when the sun goes down. And look at this. It says at the end, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. In a time of peace, in a time of ease and comfort, in relative convenience from what they were used to, he's saying this is not a time to disarm. This is not a time to take the easy route. We need to be vigilant. We need to watch. Much of the opposition we face in this life is probably not uh, the, plotting, the violent plotting and scheming uh, that many of our other brothers in other countries of the world have to face. In many ways, the obstacle of peace is probably one of the greatest ones. But the word that Nehemiah would have for us is to build in battle um, it's the reminder that we need to grow, yes, our nurseries, our children's ministries, our youth ministries. We need to grow them uh, in depth of love and, and perhaps even number, but we also need to protect our faithful volunteers from ministry burnout. Yes, we want our church to grow in size and depth of maturity, but we also need to protect the witness of our church amidst the very watching world. We need to live a very faithful Christian life and to build a strong Christian testimony, and yet we also need to protect our own heart from the temptations of this world. In this last portion of Nehemiah, there's no room to disarm. There's no room for spiritual laziness. And as we look at this passage, and as we look at the different oppositions, ridicule, scheming, plotting, discouragement, and peace— I'm reminded of our Lord and Savior. Jesus was ridiculed. Jesus was, uh, had his life threatened and plotted against. Jesus was discouraged by the words of both those who were his enemies and even his closest followers and even family. Jesus had the security of heaven. He could, he could if he wanted, he could have stayed there with his father in perfect relationship, and yet he came to save the opposition that we see here is not, is not that different from what we see today. And it's not any different from what our Lord and Savior encountered. 
And yet through it all, through all of that, our Lord was steadfast. The actions and words of Nehemiah are, are akin to the words of 1 John that says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so as we go to our different workplaces, as we build um, with, in the stations of life that we're in, uh, in ministry, in family, um, in work, in whatever it is, we are called to be faithful. We are called to pray and to act. We are called to build God's ministry and his kingdom and his people, but also to protect it, to build in battle. I want to leave you with uh, some of the words that you're probably all familiar with. Um, I want to leave you with the beginning and the end of A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, written by Martin Luther, that in a time of tumult where there was ridicule and opposition and discouragement, a song that was often called the Battle Hymn of the Reformation reads this. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth still doth seek to work his woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. And then it ends like this. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, and his kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that the word we heard would fall upon good soil, that for whatever station of life we're in, for whatever opposition we have faced or are in the midst of or have yet to face, that we would remain steadfast, not on the basis of our own strength, our own cunning, our own planning, but on the basis of who you are, that we would remember that you are the Lord, awesome and mighty. Lord, that we would be faithful to do and to pray. That we would be faithful to build your kingdom and to battle to protect it. Help us to be a people with a zeal and passion for your glory and your purposes. We love you, Lord. 